The following is a message from Kathy Ellis, who's filling in for Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. Thank you to our fabulous musicians and singers. Thank you. So, Ken was going to be talking and giving the final message in his series about uh, the caterpillar into the butterfly chrysalis moments. He will tell us about that next week. And for February, we're going to have a series about various kinds of love. So actually, this is sort of a preview of that. February early or something. One of my favorite spiritual teachers is a 14th century German theologian, mystic, and poet named Meister Eckhart. And I've shared some of his poems in some team meetings or springboard groups, but I want to share one of my favorites here this morning. It's called Love Does That. All day long, a little burrow labors, sometimes with heavy loads on her back and sometimes just with worries. She worries about the things that bother only burrows. And worries, as we know, can be more exhausting than physical labor. Once in a while, a kind monk comes to her stable and brings a pear. But more than that, he looks into the burrow's eyes and touches her ears. And for a few seconds, the burrow is free and even seems to laugh. Because love does that. So this morning I'm talking about love as compassion. I think that compassion lies at the heart of all of our religious traditions. Though sometimes it's covered over and buried. And I think that the growth of compassion is a primary goal of spiritual practice. And of course, spiritual practice is a primary part of what we're about here at Wellsprings. Reverend Ken has been talking about that new life, bringing the caterpillar into the butterfly, and how spiritual practice brings new life. And I think that compassion both brings new life, is a part of new life, and leads to new life. It's part of the caterpillar, the chrysalis, and the butterfly, maybe. So, are we getting ready? Are we ready? Are we ready to feel compassion, to live compassion? Yeah, but, so, all right, what does that word mean? It's a word we use a lot. I'm going to read a definition that is a little long, but I think speaks well to what I think about compassion. This is from a Buddhist writer named Robert Thurman. And he says the English word compassion is used to translate a Sanskrit word called karuna. And maybe the yoga teachers among us can correct my pronunciation, but I think it's karuna. And it means suspending happiness. To feel compassion, you must turn away a little bit from yourself, from your focus on superficial happiness, to sense the true condition of others, honestly facing their pains. This turn is the key to expanding awareness from self-centered states of mind, which are always unsatisfactory, and to connecting with the feelings of others. And then real satisfaction becomes possible. So compassion is thus an open-hearted empathy for the suffering of others and the wish to free them from it. It's the twin of another powerful emotion, 
love, Sanskrit, maitri, which means the wish for the beloved others to be really happy. So to succeed in making others happy, guess what you got to do? You must first develop the kind of deeper happiness within yourself that only increases when you share it. Compassion is with feeling. So it's feeling with others. It's sharing your feelings with others. So I recently read, well, part of a long, interesting religious history book. I'm sort of geeky about history sometimes, but I don't really have time to finish it. But anyway, this book, Karen Armstrong's book called The Great Transformation, The Beginning of Our Religious Traditions. She writes about the axial age. And she convinced me or reinforced me that compassion is at the heart of our religious traditions. Has anybody heard of the axial age? Raise your hand if you've heard that even. One. Yeah. Two. (laughs) Well, the axial age was the period between about 900 and 200 BCE. That was a long time ago. And the German philosopher named it the axial age because it was pivotal to the development of humanity, he thought. The Axial Age was one of the most significant periods of intellectual, psychological, and religious history in all recorded history. Here's some of the things that happened. I mean, that we're talking 700 years ago. I mean, 700 years, 3,000 years ago. But in China, Confucius was alive, and Confucianism and Taoism arose. In India, Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, was alive, and Buddhism and Hinduism developed. In Israel, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Amos, and Isaiah, all lived and monotheism developed. And in Greece, it was the time of Plato and Socrates. So there's lots of old, wise people in this period. And Armstrong showed that they all had some similarities in their teachings. And that those teachings are still relevant to us here this morning at Wellsprings and to all the world. Because they put these wise old sages, they put the abandonment of selfishness at the top of their agenda. And the spirit of compassion. This Micah 6, one of the prophets, he asked, what does the Lord require of us? But to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Jesus was a little bit later, but what did Jesus teach was primary about religion? If you know the story about the rich young man, um, he asked him what was most important. And Jesus said, to love your God and to love others as you love yourself. So, These sages thought that religion was that golden rule. And they concentrated on what people were to transcend from. Getting ready for that train. And what they were to transcend from was greed, egotism, and hatred and violence. They didn't really define what they were transcending to, what was at the end of the line on that train. It wasn't an easily defined place. It wasn't a person. It was a state of beatitude. That is... It was a feeling of deep happiness, 
a feeling of blessedness. You know, at the end of our messages, Ken often says, and sometimes I do, and I will this morning, (coughs) may you live in blessing. (coughs) May you live in that deep happiness, that contentment, excuse me, So that vision, though, the vision of the ancient axial age sages has often been distorted and diluted. And we see that today. Those prophets, mystics, philosophers, Armstrong's rights of the axial age were so advanced and their vision so radical that later generations often produced exactly the kind of religiosity that the reformers had wanted to get rid of. So those visions have turned into dogmatic fundamentalism in every religion. But the Axial Age teachers weren't interested in dogma and doctrine. Some of them refused to discuss theology at all, and others argued that it was immature, unrealistic, and perverse to look for the kind of absolute certainty in religion that sometimes people do look for. Instead, they discovered a transcendent core of a human being, of their own existence, And they didn't regard it as supernatural. The only correct attitude to the experience of transcendence, they said, was reverent silence. (coughs) Maybe I caught those germs from King. (laughs) So... Like contemporary people here at Wellsprings or Unitarian Universalists elsewhere, what mattered to those sages was not what you believed. It was how you lived. What do you do with the gifts that have been given to you? The only way to encounter God, Nirvana, Brahman, Atman, was through compassion. They advised sages that you must dedicate yourself to an ethical life and you must be ready to change. Are we getting ready? Spiritual practice brings new life, caterpillar into chrysalis, into butterfly. All the sages predict, preached a spirituality of empathy and compassion. We said that. And that that spirit should extend as much as one is able to the entire world. But I think it's also important to note, and one of the things that I found interesting about this history, is these weren't peaceful, calm times where people were just all sitting around meditating and getting holy. No, they were very disruptive, violent, chaotic, kind of crazy times. Maybe sort of like the 21st century. And people of that age often felt alienated, uprooted, disconnected. Where do I belong? What am I doing here? Same kind of questions we can have. Still, it was in this violent and confusing context that they said empathy is essential for morality. And they advocated self-awareness and honesty with the self. They encouraged facing suffering and accepting that suffering is inescapable in our lives. So they thought that only when we actually were responsible, took responsibility for our own lives and own behavior, 
could we take practical and effective actions of love and justice and mercy in the world? If we don't look at ourselves and our own suffering, we might still take some actions, but they may not be so useful or so effective. When we do face our own suffering and other suffering, then we don't want to harm other people, and we do have more joy in our lives. When we stop denying our suffering, we open up the doors and the windows for joy to come back to us. Over and over, psychological research has shown that the development of compassion leads to greater happiness. Now, some of you know that before I felt that I needed to be on the path towards Unitarian Universalist ministry, I was a psychotherapist. And I did not know when I started work as a psychotherapist that I was beginning a spiritual practice. But I was. Sometimes it was a little more obvious. Sometimes I was intentional about focusing and praying before I saw someone, but, you know, not in the beginning. But I was. In the, in the words of Thurman that I spoke earlier, I had to turn my focus slightly away from myself to sense the true condition of others honestly facing their pains. It was my wish, my work, to try to help others to be free from their suffering or to help them to help themselves to be free from their suffering. And a few years ago, I met a woman who'd been a psychotherapist for 35 years and had become an Episcopalian nun. I didn't even know that there were Episcopalian nuns. But Sister Mary Macrina said to me that practicing psychotherapy pushes your spiritual growth. At least it does if you are awake and aware, if you practice from your heart. And I remembered being told a long time ago, probably in my master's program, which was longer ago than I want to say, um, that empathy was a completely logical cognitive brain process. And you didn't really feel what the other person was feeling, and it was all done from the head and not from the heart. And I think, well, maybe that's how that professor practiced. But that was not my experience. I do feel things in my body in response to what other people tell me. And I care about other people, and I work from my heart, and I know that I am not alone. We all have a natural inborn ability to be empathic. And like other abilities, human abilities, that ability varies a great deal. And on some people, I have very little empathy, and some people can hardly stand to be in a room with other people because they're flooded with emotion. But regardless of our level of empathy, we can all develop our empathy. We can all learn to increase our compassion. Resonant empathy is an interesting concept, I think, that can demonstrate that we do all have empathy. Infants, newborn infants in the nursery develop, not develop, demonstrate resonant empathy. Resonant empathy is a response a visceral bodily response to other people's emotions. So when you walk into, say you go to 
relatives or friend's house, and they've just had a fight before you got there. You feel, don't you? You feel the tension in the air. And sometimes we get tense because the people around us are tense, or we get anxious and worried because the folks around us are worried. That's resonant empathy. And what happens with babies in the nursery is that if one baby wakes up crying, some of the other babies respond crying because that baby is crying. Not because they're startled awake. They cry because the other baby is crying. It's a basic form of empathy. So we can learn to see that tension and worry and anger and observe it without feeling it. And that helps to increase compassion. Because when we feel the other people's tension and anger, uh, we're likely just to react out of that in ourselves or to find a reason to be tense or angry in ourselves. When we can be aware that it exists and say, hmm, Jess and Scott, my daughter and son-in-law, are uh, pretty tense right now. I wonder what that's about. And I'm increasing my effectiveness with them rather than, he must be hurting my daughter, which he doesn't. (laughs) You know, and trying to do something about it or getting mad at them because they're disrupting something for whatever. So... My ability to empathize was trained early on in my family of origin, but it got trained more professionally and just through practice. And when you fully attend to other people's suffering and empathize with them, it can be like being refined through fire. And you need courage to really fully attend to others' suffering, and yet it is essential. So we need that courage to live and the courage to live an imperfect life. I'm having an experience now that's, um, I guess, a seven-second level of refining. uh, One of the things required of people becoming Unitarian Universalist ministers is to work for a while in a hospital as a chaplain. So when I'm not at Wellsprings, I'm in the hospital. And in the hospital, you go into a room really as a chaplain, really knowing nothing about the person in the room. I have their name, their age, sometimes a preliminary diagnosis. I know nothing of who they are. And they are in crisis because they're in the hospital. So it's quickly hearing about all kinds of feelings and experiences in a person's life some of which may resonate with my own life experiences. The woman that I met in the waiting room sobbing because her mother was dying, and she felt guilty because she was doing what her mother wished and not continuing life-sustaining devices. Or the woman and her husband who were about to give birth to a stillborn baby and whose life experiences eerily mirrored some of my early experiences. I don't have time in the hospital to think it all through. I have to just be there with that person. And one of the great things about being a chaplain that I couldn't do or didn't allow myself as a psychologist is that I get to pray with people. 
And it proves to me, if I had any doubt, that prayer makes a difference. I'm not saying that it brings the God down from the sky to fix the person's problems. It certainly does not. But it brings a sense of calm and hope and peace in that moment. And that makes a difference. But it doesn't take being a chaplain or being a psychologist to practice compassion or to increase your compassion. There are many ways. And I put a handout in the order of service this morning that gives some suggested kinds of ways to intentionally cultivate compassion. Um, There's a Christian evangelist and church planter, Steve Schrogren, who wrote a book called Conspiracy of Kindness. And he encourages what he calls servant evangelism. He gives away bottles of water, packets of sunscreen, or free car washes. They take teams and go into fast food places or gas stations and clean the bathrooms. For him, the Christian message is all about serving other people. And here at Wellsprings last spring, Reverend Ken led a springboard group, Not So Random Acts of Kindness. They did some similar things and practiced these small acts. And one of the participants, Sean Hester, who's not here this morning, but he said in a worship service later that now when I have a bad day, rather than trying to get something for myself, I do something for someone else and I feel better. I, too, have found that if I go into the hospital being distressed about something in my own life, I soon forget that distress as I attend to the other people. We can all do that. We can practice acts of kindness daily. And sometimes we see the ripple effects of that kindness. Reverend Ken had a practice when there was a little cafe next to the Wellspring office of going and leaving $10 with the cashier for the next person's lunch. And what really interested me about that was the reaction, or were the, were the reactions, of the staff. One young man, kind of, kind of a down-and-out, struggling young man, said, Wow, people really do care. Because he didn't believe that there were so many people in the world who cared. And the staff saw that surprise and gratitude. They got to participate in the giving. They relaxed and they smiled and chatted when they told us about what they saw and experienced. One man got the gift of a meal and he immediately left $50 with the cashier for Wellsprings. He just wanted to spread the kindness. I think Ken still has that $50 bill, although he replaced the $50 in the Wellsprings fund. And it doesn't take being a psychologist or a chaplain or giving away money to engage in acts of compassion. The Buddhist psychologist Lauren Ladner points out that the ideal of compassion is not feeling bad about what you can't do. It's joyfully and energetically doing all that you can do for others in any given moment. When the joy comes back and when you're charged full, you can spread it around. Once when I was working in West Virginia, I was waiting for my husband to pick me up after work. And where I was waiting was beside a bus stop. 
there was a man who was alone at the bus stop, and he was clearly a man with some developmental disabilities. And we just had a little conversation. And then he asked me, he said, are you a counselor? Are you a counselor? Because the only people who talk to me are counselors. I was really sad. I, I, I didn't want to lie to him, so I said, yes, I'm a counselor. So just talking, just listening to that person at the bus stop, that mother waiting beside you for the child to come out of school may make an impact on a person that you will never know. And you are practicing kindness. There are also meditation practices for increasing compassion. Many of us, I think, are familiar with the loving-kindness meditations. Other meditations can include envisioning all those who have loved and nurtured us, all those who have been kind to us, accepting and appreciating kindness given to us can also help us increase our compassion. So you have a handout with some of those meditation practices. And I'd like for us to practice a brief guided meditation right now. It's called Invoking the Presence of the Beloved. So if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes. But just center yourself, maybe put both feet on the floor. Put yourself in a position for a meditative state. And then take a long, slow, deep breath. And let it out slowly. Let your body and your mind relax. Connect with your longing. It's part of us all. Your longing to be held in unconditional love. And then bring to mind the image or sense of a person, a spiritual figure, or maybe a deity that you associate with compassion. You might see the face of a beloved family member or a dear friend. Or maybe you might see an image of Buddha or Krishna or Jesus, Mary or Kuan Yin. Maybe you'll call to mind your own image of the spirit of love and love in the universe. With a silent prayer, ask this being to be present with you. Look into eyes that regard you with understanding and complete acceptance. Place your attention on your heart and experience this compassionate being as absolutely present and available and wanting to be with you. Now imagine this being's presence as a radiant and boundless field of light. Visualize and feel surrounded by this warm light. 
held in this being's loving embrace. Let your hurt and fear, pain and sorrow, dissolve into this merciful presence. Just allow your entire body, heart, and mind to release, to release into this loving awareness. And feel yourself being filled with this compassionate presence. Let yourself be filled. And know that you too can contain the radiant light of compassion. You can become that compassionate presence. You can spread that radiant light of compassion. When you are ready, bring that light with you. Take another deep breath. Let it out slowly. Open your eyes and return to this room, this community of Wellsprings. And breathe. May we all become embodiments of compassion. May this love guide us, and may we live in blessing. May you live in blessing. Will you join me in a prayer? Spirit of life and love, spirit of compassion, Thank you for bringing us together in this room on this morning. May we be open and aware of each other. May we learn what it is that we each need to learn. May we carry the light and love we experience at Wellsprings each week out into the world and spread it around. This is my prayer this Sunday morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org.